Oh, how sweet it is. Sweet indeed to be back with you, no doubt the most Lutheran listening audience in the history of podcasts. I know that because this is the best Lutheran podcast in the history of podcasts. How's that for humility? (laughs) Welcome back. Glad to be back with you after an unexpected long break. You're back with me on our adventure, twice the Lutheran. Even though I haven't heard from you or you from me, I still have two L's. Pastor Wells, still two of those L's, and you know why. Still twice the Lutheran, right along with you. So why no podcast last week? Are you ready for the dramatic and Okay, I, I can't have any build-up to that. I just had a head cold. I wasn't going to make you listen to my head cold voice. I was coughing and sneezing, and I sounded like I had a, a little bit of a sinus thing going on. So you're welcome. I love you too much to have you listen to me like that. <laughs> Haven't heard from many of you yet regarding the question I posed to you two weeks ago. Remember, I'd asked you, do you attend a Bible study? Why or why not? And what do you like about Bible study? What could be better about Bible studies? I'm looking for your feedback because it's importante. So let me know. What do you like? What could be better? about Bible classes, looking to have more folks in Bible class, your input needed. You can give me that input, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. I also do have a Facebook page, by the way. It's not great, but I do monitor it. So if you want to head on over to Twice the Lutheran on Facebook, give it a like, give it a follow. I might throw even some extra content your way every now and then, and you could message me there. Twice the Lutheran on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not that hip. Not not yet, at least. Maybe I'm getting hipper as I get older. Doubt it. But maybe a guy could hope. We left off last time we were together. We are looking to finish up the ninth and 10th commandments. We talked about wanting things, coveting. For your reminder and edification, the ninth commandment follows as this. Why did I say it that way? I don't know. This is the ninth commandment. That's what I meant. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or obtain it by a show of right, but do all we can to help him keep it. And the Tenth Commandment, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, workers, animals, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not force or entice away our neighbor's spouse, workers, or animals but urge them to stay and do their duty. Interesting, isn't it, that we sort of distinguish in the commandments between coveting a person's house and then all the other things that he owns. Why do we make that distinction? 
I think for good reason. I think we would say there's something different about trying to get a neighbor's property and income. There's something different in that than there otherwise would be in getting his people, right? And so we always lump the Ninth and Tenth Commandments together because they are so similar. But I do think that there's a little bit of a distinguishing there. We left off in the Catechism, page 106. Page 106, question 95, if you're following along. Here's what the Catechism asks us. First, it makes a statement. Contentment is the opposite of coveting. Let's wrestle with that for a minute. Is contentment, do you agree with that statement? Contentment is the opposite of coveting. Well, what is contentment? I've heard it said that being content isn't having what you want. It's wanting what you have. Eh, not bad. Not bad. But I would even say contentment itself. How do you get contentment? How do you become content with the things you have? How do you achieve contentment? That is a large question. A large question for people to wrestle with. Everybody's kind of looking for it, right? Everybody wants contentment. So how do you get it? Well, you came to the right place, friends. Because the catechism sort of gives us the answer of where to get contentment in this question. Why can we say that contentment is a gift from God? That question makes an assumption. The assumption is that contentment is a gift from God. Now, how can we prove that? How can we say for sure that contentment comes from God? Well, pretty easy. Psalm 145, 15 and 16, The eyes of all look eagerly to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. I can still remember the first time that I heard that psalm, those verses of that psalm. I remember because in my house growing up, we would pray before the meal, that good Lutheran prayer, right? Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let these gifts to us be blessed. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Amen. If you haven't memorized those prayers, do so. Pray them before every meal and after every meal. It's a way to remind ourselves our food comes from God and we give him thanks. Well, So I remember hearing this verse for the first time because we were at some function. I don't remember some family thing. And I was, I was a kid. And my dad was asked, can you pray before the meal? Can you say the table prayer? And, of course, I'm ready for come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. And that's not what he says. He all of a sudden starts saying, The eyes of all look eagerly to you, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thy hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. Come, Lord Jesus, and into the rest of the prayer. And I thought, what? That's not the prayer? Only to find out, ah, Dad was praying a psalm. He opens his hand 
and satisfies the desire of every living thing. He satisfies desire. St. Augustine recognized this. St. Augustine of Hippo, that was a long time ago. He's long dead. He's with Christ, but one of those real early Christians. He said in a prayer, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Powerful words, insightful words. The desires of our heart find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. Augustine said your heart is going to keep being restless until you find rest and contentment in God, in Jesus Christ. And to the extent that you don't, then you will never truly be content. There is a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Guess what only can fill that? God can. And he does it at just the right time. The eyes of all look eagerly to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. There is a time for you to have stuff. And in this case, in Psalm 45, there's a time for you to have food. And God knows when that time is and when the, what the amount is. So he gives them their food at the proper time. And not just food, but everything. To the extent that you trust God to take care of your needs. To the extent that you trust him to give you just exactly the right stuff at just exactly the right time. To that same extent will you find contentment. Will you finally find rest for your heart. You can say to your heart, dear heart, we have enough. Dear mind, Stop wandering, dear heart. Stop coveting. What we have is enough. How about another passage? 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we certainly cannot take anything out. Godliness, godliness with contentment. Two things, godliness. There's probably two facets we could say to that. One, second table of the law, right? Commandments 4 through 10. The way that we live our life with our neighbor, the way we treat each other is godliness. And then go back to the first table of the law, commandments one through three, my relationship with God. There is godliness there too. Finding center, forgiveness, faith in Jesus Christ, living with my fellow man in a way that reflects my faith. That is godliness in broad strokes, of course. And contentment. I don't have to chase the world. Neither do you. When's the last time you told your heart that? You don't have to chase. You are in Christ. You do not have to worry. 
You do not have to be stressed out. You can choose that. And many of us are. Some of us, it's a big struggle. But you don't have to. You can lay down your worry. It's okay. You don't have to strive to get more, more status, more stuff, more money, more time. More. There's never going to be a level at which your flesh, your body will say enough. The only time that you will find that you will say enough is when you understand why Augustine prayed what he did. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Until you rest fully in Jesus Christ, there won't be contentment. And so the Catechism tells us that contentment comes with the realization that we can trust God to give us the things we need. I mean, even that passage from Timothy, right? First Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world and you can't take anything out of it. Realize, like we love the rags to riches story, right? We love those stories of like the foreign immigrants that come to the United States and they got, you know, two pennies in their pocket and clothes on their back and that's it. And then they're self-made millionaires. Those are really cool stories. Realize that each and every one of us has that story. (laughs) It's not reserved for these very special people. You came into the world naked. You didn't even have clothes on your back. Think about that. God does not have you born into the world with a trust fund, with a pension already ready to go. He doesn't even make sure you got a pair of socks when you get into the world. He sends you in stark naked, the birthday suit. And now just take a minute and look around you. Did you do it? Are you looking? Look around you. Look at all the stuff you got. Look at it all. There's probably, if you're riding in your car, just look at the car you're riding in. You're doing 60, 70 miles an hour down the freeway in a climate-controlled, comfortable, seat-heated whatever. Wow. You came into the world naked, and look what you got. Do you think God's blessings will run out on you? No, of course not. Rest content. Smile for goodness sakes. <laughs> How's that? That'll make you smile. I yell at you to smile. That, that'll that make you smile. Put a smile on your face. I might have said that to a kid or two in my house. Would you smile? <laughs> the Lord has given you so much goodness, friends. And me too. Life can be okay. We can be content. I mean, finally, in the end, everything that you really, honestly, truly need is all free. It, it, I always find it ironic, and it, I don't want to. I don't want to downplay it because, trust me, the grocery bill is plenty high at my house. But I always find it funny how we complain about how expensive food is. Think about it. How much does food cost? The stuff is free for goodness' sake. It pops out of the ground. You put in one seed, you get back a vegetable that's got a thousand more seeds. I mean, we overcomplicate this. The food is free. It literally grows on trees, okay? The air you breathe costs zero. The sunshine that hits your face is free. The water that falls from the sky and fills your garden and your drinking glass is free. 
the love you receive from your children and your spouse that is free. The care that you receive from your parents that is free. The things that you really need, the things that are absolutely critical for you, it's free. It's all free. Yeah, you, you got to do some work. Yeah, your house is free. I mean, it, it grew up out of the ground, too, in the form of a tree. Cut it down, make it into lumber, right? You got a place to live. It's all free. I, I understand. I'm overstating that a little bit. But look how good God is to us. That he could send us into a world stark naked and then fill our cups. And what do we do half the time? It's not enough. It's not good enough. All right. Let's press on, huh? <laughs> Here's some good news after I make all those noises. Jesus came to do away with our sin. I mean, just let that sink in. I mean, this is great. Not only does he give us everything we need physically, that's still not enough. He shows up and gives us everything we need spiritually. Jesus came to do away with our sin. Because of his sacrifice, we want our hearts to be pure so that all we do honors him. So how do the ninth and 10th commandments serve as guides for our daily lives? Luke twelve fifteen, He said to them, watch out. Be on guard against greed. Because a man's life is not measured by how many possessions he has. Well, there's your guide. Watch out. Your sinful flesh knows no limit on what it wants. And left to yourself, and me too, by the way, me too, left to ourselves by nature, we're greedy. We want, we want, we want, we want. We chase, we steal, we strive, we covet. Be on guard against that. And recognize your life is not measured by how many possessions you have, which begs the, begs the question. We always use that phrase inappropriately. Begging the question is a logical fallacy. So it should be like it, it brings up the question, which is different than begging the question. Ah, tangent over. If your life is not measured by the stuff you own, how is your life measured? Which is another way of saying, what do you want me to say at your funeral? What will people say about you when you're gone? What do you think they say about you now? Do you really think that at, at your funeral we're going to be like, oh, that dude had a sweet car. Oh, you should have seen you should have seen his video game system. Like you should have seen what he had in the garage. Nobody cares, guy. Nobody cares, lady. We don't care. You care what's in your garage, your basement? I don't. <laughs> Sorry, I don't. I don't care about the stuff you have. I don't care if it's bright and shiny or if it's old and rusty. I don't care. And when it comes to the end of your days and what people say about you, only the shallowest among us would ever care how cool your car was. What's your life measured in? Did he love was she godly? What legacy have they left behind in their family and in their friends? Were they helpful? Were they faithful? Those are the things that matter. That's how our lives are measured. It's not measured by the stuff. 
He who dies with the most toys doesn't win. Sorry. How else does it serve as a guide? 1 Timothy 6.8, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be satisfied. Are you really willing to say that along with the scriptures? Are you really satisfied with food and clothing? And note here, it doesn't say caviar and Gucci. It just says food and clothing. With these, we will be satisfied. Are you ready to say that? If all else was stripped away, would it be enough for you? If everything was gone and you lived in a tent in the public park and you had bread and water and you had some clothes on your back, is that enough? Now, nobody's asking you, by the way, to get rid of all your stuff. No one's saying that it's bad that you have it. It's a blessing from God. Enjoy it. Do enjoy it. But be careful how close you hold it to your heart. Take care of the things God's given you. Don't abuse them. Don't waste them. He did give them to you for a reason. But at the same time, guard your heart. And recognize that all of it could be taken away by those who love this world more than they love Christ. Historically, that's what's happened. They come for the stuff at some point. When that day happens, are you ready to be content with just food and clothing? Easier said than done, right? Easier said than done. And finally, how about this one? Hebrews 3.15. Well, two more. Let's, let's do two more. Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I love this. So it tells you what to do and then why you can do it. What you should do, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And why should you do it? For God has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And that's enough. Because God is the only one that can really, truly, honestly say that. Everybody else will leave you. Death will take them, right? Some of them might leave you in this life, unfortunately, before they die. But only God is the only one who can really say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. To the extent that you trust that, you begin to realize that your treasure is in heaven. And yeah, there's stuff there too, by the way. There's every reason to think there's physical stuff. You get your physical body back in heaven. You're not going to be a floating around disembodied spirit. You're going to have your body back. It's going to be perfect. And so presumably in heaven, there's stuff up there for you. And the scriptures say the stuff is being held and reserved for you already. And no one can ever take it. And it can never fall apart and get old. Let that be your inheritance. Let that be your stuff. Yes, be content down here. Take care of the stuff you've been given. Enjoy the stuff that God gives you. But finally, remember all the other stuff, your stuff, it's all in heaven. And no one can get to it. Okay, one last one. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death whatever is worldly in you. That's a big ask, guys. We are all children of our, of, of our generation to a certain extent. Our sinful nature is still a child of this world. We like our stuff. And so Colossians 3, 5, put to death whatever is worldly in you, sexual immorality, uncleanness, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. I'm going to bring up a big one now. Here's a big claim that I've heard. I've heard this multiple times. A couple is living together. 
in a sexual relationship, let's say, they're cohabiting, we'll say, which is against the Sixth Commandment. We've talked about that in the Sixth Commandment. Feel free to go back and review that if you want. They're enjoying the benefits of marriage without being married. That's how we usually say it, right? And so you talk to them, hey, what's going on, you Christians? Do you not agree with God when he said that you should be married to enjoy sex and the benefits of marriage? Do you, are you telling him he's wrong? Because you're by your lifestyle, that's what you're saying. God was wrong when he said it. Oh, no, Pat, no, no. We just we can't afford to get married. Huh? Yeah, you know, if, I, if we get married, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, our debt uh, doubles or triples. Uh, you know, we lose benefits and this and that. Oh. Yeah, you're right. Then go ahead. Don't get married. God could not possibly tackle those issues. <laughs> That's me being sarcastic, by the way. Oh, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, for the sake of your government benefits, you should just lie to everybody Call yourself husband and wife. Pretend to be husband and wife. But then, you know, receive the benefits of not being husband and wife from the government. How do you think that's going to play with God? Is that true? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things, all the physical things, will be given to you as well. Those who make such a claim, we couldn't get married because our benefits would run out. You world chasers, you world lovers. You don't love Christ. He hasn't claimed your heart in that you love the world. You're willing to walk away from Christ and his word so that you can have more of the world. That was harsh, but it's a rebuke. It's meant to be a rebuke. If you are saying, I couldn't possibly afford to get married, well, then you better not pretend to be married either. Sorry. Then you ought not be living together. You ought not be sleeping together. It's that simple. Humanly speaking, of course, I understand these things are quite more nuanced when we get into them. But finally, if someone is persisting in that, Don't we owe it to them to say, then Christ has not won your heart. I'm afraid Christ has not won your heart on this one. You love the world. You want the world. Put to death whatever is worldly in you, Colossians 3, 5, sexual immorality, refusing to get married, but living together as a married couple. That's sexual immorality. Put to death to death, whatever is worldly in you. I always find that language interesting, put to death. That's harsh language. It's not like, uh, you know, usher into the back room or appalled. It's put to death. That is violent language. Put to death the things that are in you. There is a sort of spiritual violence that's happening there. There is part of you that you have to kill. That old nature, that the part of you that loves all the naughty stuff, you got to kill it. We're not saying pander to it. We're not saying diminish it. We're not. We're saying kill it. And by we, I mean God. Is <laughs> the scriptures. So just by saying put it to death, is sort of a de facto admission that it's going to be difficult. 
that it's going to be painful. Death is typically painful. And yet we're called to put it to death in us. There's something in us that needs to die. It's the part of us that loves the world. Before we leave the commandments and go to the conclusion of the commandments, there's a little foreshadowing for you. The old catechism, and by old I mean old blue kuski, if you are a Lutheran or were confirmed, you remember uh, the, the old blue kuski catechism, that's what we call it, uh, the catechism I had when I was a kid. Um, it had a section in it here, and so I'm going to flip to my old Kuski Catechism because I thought this was a really strong section that I, I kind of wish was brought out more in the new Catechism. I'm just turning a page here. Hold on. Yeah. It, it, it's not really – it's kind of implied throughout in the new Catechism. But in the old Catechism, we had this very specific section. And it had a subheading. It says, The Old Adam and the New Man or New Person. And it's question 126 on page 116 in the old blue kuski. And it asks this question, Why do we have so many sinful desires? Why does my stinking heart want to chase all this naughty stuff? And it gives us this answer. After all the passages, I'm not going to read all the passages. Well, let me read one. Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It hates God. It's an enemy of God. It doesn't want what God wants. And so the Catechism gives us this answer. We have so many sinful desires because by nature, we have a heart and a mind that are inclined only toward evil. The sinful nature, the sinful flesh, the old Adam, the old man, or the old self. Those are all terms you've heard me use. Lutherans have been using them for a long time. They refer to that same part of us. And then the catechism goes a little further. Why? Why do we have by nature a heart and mind that are inclined only toward evil? You might hear it said that people are basically good. People are naturally good. Like, given the choice, people will, like, be inclined towards the good. The scriptures teach, and, and the scriptures are the reality, by the way. They give us the truth. And the scriptures teach that that is not the truth, that we are inclined towards good. It says, in fact, we're inclined towards evil. Now, why is that? We have, here's what the Catechism says, we have such a heart and mind by nature because all people are conceived and born in sin as a result of Adam's fall into sin. And we call that inherited or original sin. And there are a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people in churches that either outright deny original sin or minimize original sin. Now, how can I prove that you have a sinful nature from the word go? You don't get born into the world as a blank slate. You don't get born into the world wanting good stuff. John 3, 6, flesh gives birth to flesh. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. So flesh cannot give birth to spirit. 
Flesh only gives birth to flesh. And what we're talking about there is not just flesh like your body, your skin, your real body, although that's there too. We're actually talking about sinful nature, sinful flesh. You have sin, an original sin, from the word go, from conception. Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful from birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Already in utero, before you're born, before you had a sinful mind, a mind to think a sinful thought, a mouth to say a sinful word, or hands that could do a sinful thing. I was conceived in sin. Because here's the dreaded truth. Sin is a hereditary disease. There's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. Sin is a hereditary disease. So how do you fix the hereditary disease? There is one way and one way only. Jesus Christ. The forgiveness that he won on the cross is forgiveness from even the sins and original sin. He washes it away. Which also, by the way, is why he can't have two human parents. Why God had to be his father, the immaculate conception. Because if original sin comes from having two earthly original sinful parents, it's a hereditary disease, you got to remove one of them from the equation. Thus the immaculate conception. Jesus didn't have original sin. That's how he saves us from it, because he is not condemned by it. And then the catechism asks us, what punishment do we deserve because of our sinful nature and the sinful desires it produces in us? We deserve the same punishment of death and hell for sinful thoughts as we do for sinful words and actions. The wages, Romans 6.23, good, good to memorize this one. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have original sin, and that original sin is real sin. It will condemn to hell. We're studying this right now in my Tuesday Bible classes, by the way. We're studying the, the seven deadly sins. And so we started our, our uh, study of the seven deadly sins by looking at original sin. Now, how do you get saved from original sin? How are we saved from the punishment we deserve, asks the catechism. And you, twice the Lutherans, already know the answer. It is only by God's grace to us in Christ that we are saved from the punishment we deserve because of our sinful nature. Which now makes a big change in us, which the Catechism recognizes in asking, what is the only reason we have pure and holy desires in our hearts? We have pure and holy desires only because of the new heart and mind. Beautiful truth. The new heart and mind that God gives us, that God creates in us by faith in Jesus. And so we call that our new man, the new person, the new self, the real me, the inner being, the real spirit, etc., etc. Which means, my friends, there is constantly a war going on inside of us. Welcome to the war. The war is between your old self and your new self. The old you and the new you. The old you and the real you. The part of you that wants all the naughty stuff. 
is battling against the part of you that wants all the good stuff and vice versa. That There's that old, um, I don't know, an old adage or proverb or saying or whatever. There's two dogs at fight that fight in every man, a good dog and a bad dog. Which one wins? Well, it's the one you feed. Yep, and that's true here too. Which one will win in you? The old man that wants all the naughty stuff? The old Adam that goes against the Ten Commandments is fighting against the new man that wants all the good stuff, the new man that trusts in Christ, wants contentment and health and peace and and godliness. So which one's going to win? It's clear. It's the one you feed. <laughs> that's the one that's going to win. So how do you feed the bad dog, the worldly dog? <laughs> we know that, don't we? We like feeding that one. You feed the bad dog, the worldly dog, by welcoming into your life with no bar, no holds barred all the bad stuff. Bring on the drinking. Bring on the porn. Bring on the coveting. Bring on the selfishness. That's feeding that dog. Now, how do you feed the good dog? I'm making the assumption, by the way, that we want the good dog to win. <laughs> Because I want to be in heaven, right? How do you feed the good dog? How do you make him bigger? How do you make him stronger? How do you make it so that dog fights and fights fiercely and fights so fiercely that he's a killer, that the good dog in you would be a killer and that it would kill the old you so that you would be putting to death all in you that is worldly. Make that dog the killer. How do you do it? Welcome into your life the word of Christ. Flee again and again to the cross. Because there in the forgiveness of Jesus in his blood is a drowning, is a murder, is a killing that's happening. Man, it's too strong to say murder. (laughs) But there in the blood of Jesus, a drowning happens. You drown that old dog. Go again and again to the promises that were given to you in your baptism, that precious holy water that has claimed you, the precious holy water that washed your soul clean. Even, by the way, if for you, dear listener, if it was all those years ago, holy water never runs out of juice, okay? The promises that are in that holy water are still true today. Go back to the promises. That's another way of saying you don't need to be rebaptized, okay? One baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It's all there. And in that water, there's a drowning. You drown that old mutt in you. Come again to the sacrament where the very blood that was on the cross is now served to you. And there, drown that mutt again. Because the old dog can't survive when there is forgiveness. The old dog thrives on bitterness. He feasts on rage and hate and guilt. He cannot stand, he cannot survive when there is free and full forgiveness. That's how you feed the good dog. That's how you make that good dog so big it's a killer. 
and kills in you, the old dog, everything that is worldly. Jesus Christ is the only one who feeds that dog. He's the only one that drowns the old mutt, that old hound that wants to drag you to hell. I guess we'd call it the hell hound, huh? (laughs) Kill it, my friend, kill it. Let Jesus kill it. Wow. You know what? That's it. We got to the end of the Ten Commandments. I'm just paging through my my catechism here. We did it. Woohoo! If I had a cheering sound, I could play it right now. Maybe there is on this machine somewhere, but I'm not going to start poking buttons because I don't know what it will do. We've done it. We made it through the Ten Commandments. Now, there's one last thing we do before we leave the commandments permanently. We look at the conclusion. The conclusion to the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read the conclusion and the meaning, and then we're not going to talk about it till next week. And if I don't get a head cold, I will be with you next week. Scouts honor. Scouts honor. What is that? I don't even know what that means. All right, the conclusion. What does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Uh, let's, let's talk about that for one quick second. I thought jealousy was a bad thing. Well, not necessarily. Jealousy is an unwillingness to share, and it's a fierce guarding of the things that, hopefully, the good jealousy is a fierce guarding of the things that need to be guarded, right? So in in a certain way, you would say, like, uh, you want a, a husband to be a jealous husband, not in a toxic way. But you want a husband who says, my wife is not to be shared, right? This is mine and only mine. That's a healthy aspect of jealousy. You guard the things that have been given to you, and you refuse to share the things that ought not be shared. Well, God's got something that ought not be shared, his glory. So he won't share that with anybody else. So he says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You belong to me. I won't share you, right? That's what he's saying. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, which means he's got to punish those who come after his stuff, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Wait a minute. And this is the complaint the the children of Israel had. How, How can I die for my father's sins? The Israelites would say, well, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So is God really saying that I have to die because of the sins of my father? No, that's not what he's saying. He says, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So when the children to the third and fourth generation do the same sins, share in the same sins that their fathers did, then yes, the hate of God will be poured out. The punishment of God will be poured out on those who hate him. Do you see what he's saying there? If you if you follow the sins of your father and you do the same things he did, he'll die for those sins and you will too because you did the same things. But, he says, but showing love to a thousand generations 
of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so we've got perfect anger and perfect love. Perfect anger will stay at the same level of angry about the bad things for forever, right? Our anger doesn't do that. Somebody could tick you off, but then with a couple days or you know weeks, you're not maybe as mad as you were. That's not true with God. He has perfect anger, so he stays perfectly angry at the same level to three and four generations. But then he wants to quickly move on to the, the, the thing he really wants to talk about is showing love, and he says, there, that's a thousand generations. Okay, So he wants you to really focus on the gospel, really chase this for a thousand generations. I don't think, I don't know how many generations of people there are. Are we? Uh, have there even been a hundred generations? I don't think so. This one's a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the Lutheran question. What does this mean? God threatens to punish. Ooh, we don't often talk about that, but that's true. God threatens to punish all who transgress these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his anger and not disobey what he commands. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should love and trust in him glad and gladly obey what he commands. That's the conclusion that we're looking for in the commandments. The promises and the threats, the promises and the punishments. Disobey these commandments at your own risk, your own very great risk to your soul. But obey them to the very great reward. And by very great, I mean eternal. A reward that is yours now and forever. And you know what reward is yours today? This episode. It only gets worse from here. Just kidding. Friends, I don't know what day you're listening to this, but I hope you're having a great twice the Lutheran week. And your reward at the end of this week will be another wonderful, nutritious, dense episode of Feist. Hello, Tarn. <laughs>